0: For the week of June 6th, 2021, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 544, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich.
1: And in Southern California, I'm Michael Giltz. Wait, you're in Southern California? Wait a second. you at the Aren't you at the christening and the birthday party? Didn't you get an invite? The christening and the bits? birthday. You're not here for a little bit's christening? Oh, awkward. I'm 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 here. I, Sorry, I think you slurred there. Here. You
0: said li- 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 Lily. Lili- 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 what? Hey, my
1: sister's My sister's name is Libit. So uh, we know about a little bit of Libit. That's how she got her name. But little bit, of course, little bit. Diana Mountbatten Windsor, the the newborn child of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Congratulations to her. Happy to be here. Nice to see you. She's been born, and so has the proper official name. We think for that merger conglomeration of Warner Media and Discovery. It will now be called, what will they come up with? Warner Max, HBO Discovery, Warner Brothers Discovery. Yeah. Genius. Genius. I
0: (laughs) I think I said when I saw that, I tweeted out, like, what did they, like, come up with that, like, right before lunch or right before (laughs) they had to go home? It was like, well, you know, it's almost five, and we need to get this done. What do you think, Warner Brothers Discovery?
1: Yeah, okay, let's go. Well, that's, uh, what's wrong with it? Nothing. You know. I don't know if that's what the app will be called if they combine the two apps, which perhaps they should, but who knows? It's yeah. uh, perfectly reasonable, but Little bit Diana, now there's class. A nod to the great-grandmother, a nod to the grandmother, everybody, but an informal first name rather than calling her Elizabeth, so she doesn't have the weight of that history behind her, much as she would have a weight if she was called Diana as her first name. That would yes. be sort of a burden. So Little bit Diana is the best of all possible worlds. And we are going to have the best of all possible podcasts. What will we talk about?
0: Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we've got more box office to discuss. That's, That's right. And by more boxes, I don't mean we have more box office news. I guess we do have more box office news. What I mean is we actually have money to count. That's how exciting this is going to be. But the question is, will it last? First, we've got good news from the BAFTA Awards from... Michaela Cole, so we'll talk about that a little later on. Uh, Bad news for the designers on Cruella, and good news again for the fans of Cruella and the nautical drama Master and Commander. Also, TV streaming numbers are available again, so we'll watch as a comic legend sees his new TV series Jupiter's Legacy debut on top of the original series chart. That's right! Oh, wait, and then it gets cancelled. So I guess that's another good news, bad news situation. On Inside (laughs) Baseball, we talk With our old friend, well, I don't want to say old friend, our good friend, Ann Thompson of IndieWire and Thompson on Hollywood. But now we can also call her, we're going to call Ann from now on, the New York Times opinion columnist, Ann Thompson. The gray lady asked her to weigh in on the summer box office, and we've got her to give us the the behind-the-scenes scoop. So wait until Inside Baseball to hear from Ann Thompson. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. Not last
1: weekend's, but last week's box office. That's right. We're looking at box office around the world. We pull our information from everywhere that we can. Comscore is sort of back up and running. They had five movies listed this week. It's still a bit of a patchwork quilt. We're still not sure of all the numbers, but we're doing the best we can. And it seems pretty clear that the number one movie around the world is Again, for the second week in a row, A Quiet Place Part 2. It made $68 million last week. It's at about $140 million in counting. This movie has a 45-day window. It comes to Paramount Plus in 45 days, and people want to see it in the theater because a scary movie in the theater is a lot more fun than a scary movie at home. The same could be said for The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, also known as The Conjuring Part 3. That made million this week. It made about $4 million last week in a brief opening. It's at $57 million worldwide. This is a movie that is available day and date in North America on HBO Max. Hmm. But people still showed up for it. If The Conjuring falls next week harder than perhaps A Quiet Place Part 2 did, or if it doesn't reach its totals the way the last Conjuring movies have, is it because... Of the HBO Max thing, it may also be because this movie isn't that scary. It's pretty good. Our horror expert fan friends, uh, my friends Michael and Rosie, went to see the movie. They saw Quiet Place 2. They saw The Conjuring 3. They love horror movies. They go to Universal's Horror Night, you know, down during Halloween in, in, in Florida. They are big horror fans. They went to see it. They liked it. But it's not that scary and it's not meant to be it's sort of a more reflective trial thing so it's not quite as scary as the other Conjuring movies they're on as much jumps and boos things like that so let's keep that in mind when we look at the box office this isn't sort of playing the same game as those other horror flicks and the other six or seven movies in the conjuring franchise just something to think about but 70 million dollars for a quiet place 53 million dollars for the conjuring the devil made me do it this is a big box office and right behind them is cruella million it made this week worldwide. It's at $87 million and counting. Cruella is available, of course, online at Disney Plus if you subscribe and you pay an extra $30. If you don't pay an extra $30, just wait a few months and Cruella will be available for free. Maybe three months, maybe four months. Who knows? We'll have to pay attention. But that's the patchwork quilt of like windowing and all the experimentation going on and we'll talk more about that in Inside Baseball. Right below Corella is F9, Fast and Furious 9. That made another $27 million. It's at $250 million worldwide, which sounds great, except the fact that the movie probably cost $250 million. But this is the world we live in. Stand By Me, Dora in 2. This is a Japanese animation film that has been released in China. It's doing extremely well. It's made more in China than it ever did in Japan or the rest of the world. It made $21 million this week, I think. It's at $87 million worldwide. It's more than doubled already what it had made previously, thanks to China. And also in China is Cliff Walkers, the period drama by director Zhang Yimou, set in the 1930s, the Chinese resisting the Japanese. So it probably will not get a great release in Japan. It made $19 million this week. It's approaching $200 million, basically, from China and Hong Kong alone. Has it right? been
0: released in the US? I think it has been released. No, in- no, no? no, no I want to no. see this I
1: movie. I love Zhang Yimou. Uh, it's been a while since he's made a really great film. Um, but yes, I, I would like to see it too. He's still worth checking out. I'm pretty sure it hasn't been released in the U S you can check that out while I keep going down the list. Okay. The British family film, Peter rabbit 2, the runaway, another $9 million. It's at $46 million and counting the Chinese romance. Love will tear us apart. Also again, a big asterisk by these numbers. I'm not sure about this one, $9 million it made this week. I think it's past the $50 million mark. No idea what the budget is. But I do know that Spirit Untamed is the latest animated film in the Spirit franchise. Remember Spirit Stallion of the Cimarron or whatever? Not only do I remember it, I was actually at a ton.
0: I saw it again with Brian Adams singing live on stage. Yeah, it didn't make the film any better, but you know it was still. Well, that's fun. What was what was the song? I can't even remember. I have no idea. I can't even remember.
1: Have You Ever Loved a Woman, which is a great song that he did for the movies, or even the one from uh, the, the, The Three Musketeers was pretty good. So he's had some good hit movie theme songs. This one perhaps wasn't it. This is the movie series that spun off a TV series, which has now led to this movie. Not very good reviews, but it opened up to $7 million. Is it available somewhere else? I have no idea. I get tired checking this out. And then there's a movie I have no idea what it is at all. It's on the China box office list. It's called Journey to the Center of the Deep Ocean, which sounds like you're going into one of those, you know, clefts in the ocean floor, or maybe it's an adaptation of a Jules Verne novel, but it's a Chinese film. It only made $3 million this week, but I haven't a clue. Couldn't find a trailer. Could not find what the actual Chinese title might be. Couldn't find out any info about it.
0: Help. Yes, you can write to us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That is 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. And we are on Facebook. Facebook Facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. And you know, you gave me so much to do. Look up whether Cliff Walkers has been released. Tell them how to contact. I was like, I, you threw that at me. I was like in the middle going, well, it's not playing at AMC. So wait,
1: I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. Well, right below that movie is Saul. I'm sorry, Spiral from the Book of Saul. I, lo- I love that title. It makes me laugh every time. It's at about $30 million worldwide. It made another $3 million this week. Let's put that in perspective. You look at the other Saul movies, uh, there are like 10 of them, practically, I think, 8, 9, or 10, 3, 6, or 9 movies. Seven of them grossed more than $100 million. Only one of them scored less. That would be Saw 6, which made just about $70 million. They're all super cheap to make. Most of them well less than $20 million, more like $10 million, $4 million. This one cost $20 million, just like Saw 3D. I guess 3D is expensive, but basically, they all made it like triple what this movie is making. This movie is almost done, I think. I don't think it has a lot of international to play out. So again, this is the world of the pandemic. We can't draw any big conclusions about whether people are done with Saul, whether this was a successful reboot. I don't think we can do that. But we can look at the overall box office numbers when it comes to China. We should have reported this last week. I missed these notes. As of last week, the China box office was at $3,970,000,000. That was just 5% short of where they were in 2019. That's pretty great. May, the Chinese box office grossed $764 million. It's the highest grossing May in China history. Think about that. Coming out of the pandemic, China had their biggest May ever, and they're right on pace with their their record year of 2019, which was their highest grossing year of all time. So China's box office is strongly Back in place, and that's why when I look forward to twenty twenty two and beyond for the North America and the rest of the world, I think that's where we could be too. I don't think Chinese movie fans are any different than fans anywhere else in the world. They love going to the movies and they have fun. They do not have the same access at home that we do, so maybe that's one factor why they're still going to the movies. If you handed it to them at home, maybe they'd say, "Why bother?" Uh, but we'll have to see. Certainly, AMC hopes people go back to the movies. They're like uh, they love day traders, don't they? Oh, they love day traders, uh, especially
0: because, you know, uh, they started the year, their their stock price was at like, I think a $1.90 or $2 or something like that. Their stock price right now, I don't even know what it is right now. Uh,
1: it's but, high, but they, they, yeah, they sold stock. Stock is so high. They said, you know, we think we'll sell some stock. So here's
0: what's 200. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, $58 is what it's at right now. So here's the deal. The, the, they are a GameStop stock. They are a a Reddit stock. And what I mean by that is uh, these Reddit day traders are trying to do a short squeeze where they drive the price of the stock up, causing all the people who have shorted the stock, which is pretty much anybody in the financial industry who thinks the stock is going to zero, uh, they all purchased the stock and then sold it at $2, assuming that when they had to repay the stock, they were borrowing the stock, that they would Buy it at zero and give it back to the person and say, "Hey, you know, here's your stock back." Uh, but the reality is, there is no way this company. And we'll talk about this with Ann Thompson too. There's no right. way this company is worth. One thing
1: million. I like. Right, it's not worth what it is right now, perhaps. But the one thing I like is that they saw this happen and said, "Well." let's sell some stock. And they're using it in a way that's pretty financially savvy. They're saying, let's not just enjoy this ride or whatever. They're they're selling it. They're taking the money and they're reinvesting, paying off debt, doing things that they can. So whatever the motivations of those people, it is helping AMC put itself in a better financial position. Stock volatility, not a good thing, but taking advantage of this momentary surge and doing something smart with it for their long-term financial health, that is good.
0: Yeah. Just to give you some sense, they did what's called an at the market offering. Normally when you do a, a stock uh, offering, you know, there's lots of time and there's a quiet period. And, you know, but they just went straight to the market and said, here's 11.5 million shares. Uh, we'd like to raise 500 and something million, something million dollars. They raised, I think, close to 800 million dollars last week. Uh, and they did it because they got a, a uh, an investment from Mudrick. They also, which is a Cap, venture capital firm, a uh, you know private equity firm, and they got uh, they they did an at the market offering for over five hundred million dollars because their stock price was so high. They said, you know what we should do is dilute everyone by uh, <laughs> offering more stock. But I do wonder, Wanda sold their stake just like two weeks ago at like ten dollars a share. <laughs> <Oopsie>. <laughs> I, do, I do wonder like what well, if they're like God, darn it.
1: <laughs> The the central committee is going to come knocking on the door. Why did you sell the stock to us (laughs) then? Well, anyway, Alamo Drafthouse is also making the best of a bad situation. They're coming out of bankruptcy. They obviously had a tough time in COVID like every other theater chain in the world. They are getting out of some leases and shutting down some poor locations, and they're going to open up about five more. Uh, They'll probably have just about the same number of locations as they did before, a, a few more than 40, 42, 43, something like that. But they will have new locations in Manhattan. D.C. and St. Louis. So they have some in another borough, but now they're going to be in Manhattan. So that'll be interesting to see. And uh, speaking of reopening, the Czech and Slovenian cinemas, they're reopening too. Glad to see the lights coming on all over the world for movie theaters.
0: Yeah, I would like to point out. So here's what happened with uh, Alamo Drafthouse. They had a private equity investor who brought in their own CEO, uh, a very knowledgeable CEO. Of course, Tim League owns or owned the the firm. Uh, and they wanted full control over it. And the best way to get full control over it is to drive it into bankruptcy. And then they had a stalking horse bid where they were like, well, you know, if anybody can beat our price for what the the cinema chain that we pretty much now own. So it drove out the other equity investors. And that's that's basically what's going on there.
1: Okay. Who knew this was going to be uh, wall street tips and, 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 you know, we're going to be like Jim Cramer suddenly covering well first we need a lawyer. Now we need yeah. a wall street analyst. Um, but when the Czech and civilian cinemas reopen, perhaps they'll be showing Cruella. Cruella will probably be playing in the theaters. I don't think they have Disney plus in Czech in the Czech Republic. Maybe they do. I don't know if you're a Czech uh, citizen and you listen to our show, let us know. But uh, the funny thing is, you can go online to Amazon and other stuff, and you can see, of course, all the Cruella birthday party stuff and all the usual merchandise tie-ins and a lot of fashion stuff, of course. The movie is very centered on fashion, so, of course, there's a lot of fashion merchandise being spun off from the movie. Who did the fashion for Cruella? It's Oscar-winning costume designer Jenny Bevan, who did Mad Max Fury Road and uh, A Room with a View and a lot of other great movies. She's an Aussie legend, of course. Wonderful talent. And of course, apparently, she was totally blindsided by the fact that there was all this Cruella fashion merchandise coming out, and naturally, she got no compensation from Disney. This has been going on for a long time. You have an artist creating costumes for a movie, where costumes, they're important in every movie, but a movie about fashion, clearly, costumes are, you know, job number one, and not only do they not get a piece of the merchandising, she doesn't even know that they're doing merchandising from the stuff she created. You can imagine her contract as an ironclad, everything you do is for us and you have no rights to it forever. You know, that's just, just a given, with, especially with someone like Disney. But some people have had enough of it. The Costume Designers Guild is denouncing the practice. They say when someone creates costumes for a movie and that spins off into merchandise, they deserve both credit, thank you very much, and compensation.
0: Yeah, I think uh, oh, this is going to get messy. Uh, I think what's going to wind up happening is, I don't know that Disney, I mean, let's face it. Everybody knew Disney was going to make toys out of this thing. That's the whole point. That's what
1: Disney does. But they don't need to of, do fashion. Maybe, well, yeah, Maybe little but, princess costumes for Halloween, yeah. but fashion, like clothes in stores to buy. That doesn't happen all the time. Uh, yeah, no, that doesn't happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, a t-shirt with a logo is one thing, but this is clothing, you know, this is designs that she created for the movie, which they have the entire rights to, and now being sold in stores, and they don't even credit her. It's not even like, you know, by Jenny Bevan or anything. Yeah. So, well, it's not going to happen unless the costume designers as a group say, well, you can't sign a contract with anyone without getting compensation and credit. We won't allow it. You can't do a business deal with them, which means Disney would have to go non-union, which would create a big fracas. Otherwise the costume designer and everyone hired for a movie is like work for hire. Even if you're one of the most famous Oscar winning fashion designers in the world, like Jenny Bevan, great, great talent. Everybody wants to work with her. You know, she's still powerless when it comes to negotiating with Disney. So unless the costume designer guild lays down the law and tries to get everyone to work together and say, no, we're not going to allow any studio to do this ever again. Nothing's going to change.
0: Yeah. I I do wonder uh, like what is the, you know legally where where this falls? Because if Disney said, oh, we're going to release uh, clothing and a clothing line at Macy's or a department
1: store and it will be inspired by, or look a it's lot work, like it's work it's work it's work for hire and you have no rights to whatever you create in fact if you come up with something else on the job we have the rights to that too you know it's it's one of those stringent you know things when you're a freelancer and you have no rights and whatever they hire you to do they are hiring you to do that specific thing and you have no rights to it if they get you to design a widget that's their widget you work at ge you create something for ge it ain't yours you're right, working just like patents and patents they, are the same way Right, so it's 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 a it's a thing, but that doesn't mean it's right. That's just the way it's working. Well, well, right then I now. think
0: uh, what will wind up happening is uh, the costume designers and everybody who does something like that uh, that that can then be sold in ancillary markets will just ask for more money up front.
1: Yeah, so that say, never okay. works. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah, you know, it's better to have compensation than everybody's working together? But the fact is they have very little power. So unless they make a big fight out of this, you know, making a noise right now isn't going to change anything. And Cruella is certainly a success. According to Disney, they made noises that there will be a sequel. Lots of green lights this week. Cruella 2, they say, is in the works. A Quiet Place Part 3, that has a release date in 2023, though I don't think it even has a script. Master and Commander, that great Oscar-winning it was up for Best Picture. Great movie. I think it won some Oscars. That's That movie starred Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. I loved it. I love the 21-volume series it's based on. Well, they're going to start again, and hopefully this time they'll be able to do some of the sequels and start back with the first book. Uh, that's exciting. And a great fantasy trilogy, Broken Earth Trilogy, by N.K. Jemison, one of the most awarded and lauded sci-fi fantasy novels of all time, uh, broke records with this trilogy. Her series has been adapted for the movies. It's eco-friendly, people of color, sexual fluidity—you name it, this got it all. Uh, but it's a really good trilogy of books, I must say. But I'm—I got to put a note by Cruella too. Do you think there's really a sequel for Cruella in the works? I think there
0: is. Yes, I think uh, there was a sequel before uh, the film was. Re- I mean, yes, of course, there's a sequel. That's just the way Disney works. If it wasn't going to be called Cruella, it would be called something else. Uh, but you know, I think the way that this is normally done, the way this usually works, and I knew they ha- they have a, a whole bunch of new staff over there at Disney who are in charge of different divisions, and there's all these different people that that are in charge of different t- distribution plans. You announce the sequel. Before the film opens theatrically, usually the week of, because what you're doing is a getting more press and b telegraphing to the audience. Hey, this movie is so good; it's so good. We believe in it so much. You got to race out and see it because we're going to
1: do a sequel to it. That's how much we love this movie. That's right. how good it is. Well, I don't think it's the fact that there are new people in place at Disney. Why this didn't wasn't announced before I'm the joking. movie. Uh, No, 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 no. That's a reasonable thing to 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 wonder. I think it's just total PR fluff, um, because all they said was, "Yeah, it's in the early stages." It's like, well, of course, there's the possibility of a sequel to Cruella. It's the fourth film in a franchise, and it's design, it's the prequel, and it's the early day. You know, of course there is. But what they announced was nothing. They said, "Oh yeah, it's in the early stages." They let that get out the week after it opened to create an aura of success, but. There's no script. There's no idea. They didn't greenlight it. They didn't sign Emma Stone to a sequel. They didn't sign Emma Thompson. They didn't, they didn't sign the director and say, we're going ahead with this. It, it was literally, yeah, sure, sure, that could happen. That's all they said. And my, know, plea to, I, my plea I'm, to a Variety, The Hollywood Reporter, and Deadline is to not just serve as a lackey to the studios. Every day, they send me emails saying, a new person has been cast in this TV show or movie. And then the next day, they put in another name. And it's like, I don't need three weeks of notices about the casting for a movie or TV show. All you're doing is serving as their PR flack. If, they, if Disney says, oh, yeah, yeah, that could happen, You don't rush out and send out news alerts and say, oh, Cruella's got a sequel. No, Cruella does not have a sequel. It hasn't been greenlit. There's no script. No one has been signed up to do it, though I'm sure it's an option in Emma Stone's contract. But don't play their game for them. Maybe a dismissive line in the box office roundup where you say Disney made noise that they're very happy with it and and there might be a sequel, but nothing has happened on that front. That's the most this deserves, not an email in my inbox, not a headline, not a story saying Cruella has a sequel, because it doesn't, and they're lying, and they're using us, and they, you shouldn't let them get away with it.
0: Well, I, I would say uh, there's somebody out there right now who works for a trade publication going, he doesn't know how this this game works. You have to publish as many stories as possible every single day to get well, that uh, doesn't, traffic. not that
1: that's not what you like. That's not what I like. I don't want 10,000 emails in my inbox saying... Uh, you know, here's the 47th person cast in the TV series Lord of the Rings. You know, the third dwarf on the left. Yeah, but they don't not, publish that. They publish, they, the do. they publish 20 people. Everyone gets its own email, its own news story. <gasps> Another person has been cast. I don't know. I mean,
0: been- in... in- in the Hollywood Reporter, Variety, and Deadline, they don't always publish the forty seventh person.
1: They, I'm saying, they do ten, they do twelve. It's ridiculous. There, there should not be a week of notices about casting in a movie. Just, the studio is just teasing out. you know, it's not that newsworthy, and it's not worth my time to get it in my inbox. Hopefully, that sort of thing, the clickbait doesn't work because people go whatever and and delete it rather than clicking on it and reading it. Because I, I think they got more stuff to do, like watch Netflix.
2: Yeah, I was so much say, stuff
1: well, on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, in fact, why don't you tell us if I was, well, I haven't watched anything on Netflix in so long. I'm so have your far daughters, behind. Have your daughters watched the animated film on Netflix, The Mitchells Versus The Machines? Uh, no, they have not. Um, are they, they aware have, of it? Oh, maybe they have, actually. They might Yell have. Yell out to them, hey, did you watch that?
0: <laughs> your kids are in the house, find out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, uh, I don't know whether they they well, watch I know that not, they've been watching Lucifer. Plan on that.
1: That's a little old for them, isn't it? A little mature?
0: No, no. They love it. They love that show. I'm
1: sure they love it. Maybe they want to watch Hannibal, but it doesn't mean it's a good idea. Well, you're the parent. What do I know? Anyway, it's time for the TV streaming charts. Nielsen reports on the TV streaming numbers as best they can for four outlets Amazon Prime, Disney Plus. Hulu, also owned by Disney, and Netflix. We'd love to have HBO Max and Peacock and all the rest in the mix, but they're not able to crack that nut yet, and those people aren't cooperating. They should. It's a good idea. We've got a combined chart where we put in the top 10 for every different type of category, and they break it down by original series, acquired series, and movies. And the number one property last week, the number one property, the most watched property was in fact an original movie on Netflix, the animated film, The Mitchells versus the Machines. About 853 minutes were consumed, about the equivalent of 7.5 million tickets sold. If everybody who watched that movie watched basically all of it, you'd get to about 7 million tickets sold and about $8 a ticket, right? That's about a $56 million opening. Not bad. That's the most popular property on streaming in those four major outlets. Right below that is the acquired series Grey's Anatomy, and then NCIS, and then at number four is Jupiter's Legacy. This is an original series, also on Netflix. It debuted at at, at number four on the combined chart, or at number one in in acquired series, original series on the streaming services. Jupiter's Legacy is number one. About 700 million minutes were viewed. It's based on the comic book by Mark Miller, the, the writer and Frank Quiley who did the illustrations and I uh, forgive me for not knowing the guy who did the lettering, but it's a very popular series. Mark Miller is a huge talent. Uh, he did, uh, what's that one? Uh, not ask kick, kick ass and all those other stuff did some really cool, interesting uh, stuff. And he sold his company to Netflix and is creating shows and universes and all sorts of fun stuff for them. This is their first big project together. It debuts at number one on original series and it's been canceled.
0: Yes, it went all the way to the cancellation
1: bin. Yeah, they saw the full season and they said, no, thank you. And it's just debuted. So this is three weeks ago with the numbers that we have. So this is, of course, the week of May 3rd to May 9th. So we're a month after it debuted. Netflix has had time to look at the numbers, watch the viewing levels. They can see how many people watched to the end, how many people stopped after five episodes, three episodes or one episode, whatever reason. They said, we're not going to go forward with this, but they are going forward with other stuff. He, he says he's happy, but that's just interesting to see. When you look at the chart overall of the combined chart, six out of the top 10 properties are original. They're original series or movies. If you look at the series and push them all together, six out of 10 of them are original. And If you look at just movies, three out of 10 are original. Lots of money still being made by acquired series like Grays and Criminal Minds and Supernatural and Shit's Creek and all that sort of stuff. So there's money to be made by everybody in every which way possible. But, you know, they made a big show with Mark Miller. It got canceled right away, but they're working on other stuff. I guess it hurts, but it's no big deal when you know you've got more stuff to do down the road. Oh, wait. You said down the road. I did. Which it means must it be must time be time for, us for down for the us. road.
0: <laughs> yes, it must be time for us to move down the road on this podcast ah. into a new segment. Not a new segment, but a new segment for this particular episode, Big Deal or Big Whoop. It's our copyrighted segment, Big Deal, Big Whoop, where we, we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. I'm about to call the copyright office so that I'm not lying, actually. Uh, our first story. OK, it's about CBS and Viacom and tax shelters because yeah, again, really, where's
1: our tax? Where's our
0: attorney and our our Wall Street analyst and our tax shelter expert? Good Lord. <laughs> Apparently, SpongeBob SquarePants has a secret offshore bank account. Oh, it's <laughs> by the way, it's perfectly legal. But Bikini Bottom, by the way, it's located in the U.S. And that would mean paying, you know, taxes. And nobody likes to do that. So Spongebob and the Transformer robots, they have both created offshore accounts and holding companies and the like, so they can technically have their intellectual property overseas. A New York Times story says CBS Viacom set up legal subsidiaries in Barbados, the Bahamas, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and Britain to shelter the lucrative
1: franchisers. Hey, what's wrong with Bermuda? What's wrong with Bermuda, my hometown? They could have done a shelter in Bermuda. I'm kind of offended. Anyway. Well, I think uh, there's there's tax reasons why you do it in, in Bermuda. No, no, no. Bermuda's a tax shelter, too. It's shameful. Oh. <laughs> shameful. That's why my dad worked there. He worked for Goodyear, and it was a tax shelter. That's why he was based in Bermuda. He flew out twice a month to New York and other places to do work, but he was based in Bermuda so they could have an office in Bermuda and people there so they could say, this is our tax, you know, this is our, our we've got a subsidiary in Bermuda. So they didn't have just like a little post post office right. box. No, they actually had people there, but not many. And he did most of his work, of course, in New York and Canada. <laughs> right. Well,
0: those two properties—we're talking uh, bikini, S- bikini bottom, no SpongeBob SquarePants and Transformers. Those two properties alone avoided almost four billion dollars in taxes over the last two decades. Okay, four that's- billion. But now okay so first off I have to ask is that a big deal or a big whoop and can it really be 4 billion dollars because if you think about it that would mean that technically those those franchises together would have to have made like 20 billion dollars
1: just to pay 4 billion in taxes do you know how much SpongeBob sells in merchandise? Do you know how I have no idea. No, no. I honestly a do not. A lot. Know. They're monsters. That's two hundred million dollars a year in generated uh, income. And when you think about the years when a, when a Transformers movie comes out, you're looking at a billion dollars for that one movie. And so they get you know five hundred million dollars out of it from box office alone. And so that would be taxes on five hundred million dollars. That starts that up. And then all the merchandise. No, it's absolutely. They're they're not exaggerating the numbers. These are billion-dollar properties easily. Sent. An it's accountant
0: over- would yeah. tell you that they would take the $500 million and they would yeah. tell you how all the hammers on that particular production cost about a trillion dollars each. <laughs> and therefore, the Transformers is actually in the hole for about $2
1: trillion. That's right. No, nobody. It's still not in profit mode. That's right. right. So yes, this is a big deal. Uh, hopefully, this will be tackled. There is just been a big change in tax code where many, the G7 nations got together and said, we'll have a minimum tax of 15%, which is wildly low. (laughs) And yet it's a first step to say, no matter where you are in the world, you should pay at least 15% in taxes and you should be paid taxes where you're generating the money, not where you pretend to be based. So if you're grossing $400 million in North America, you pay taxes on $400 million in North America, even if your company pretends to be based in Ireland. 15% is super low. It's just the first step. You got to go to the G20 and then the rest of the world and Ireland needs to shut up and Bermuda needs to shut up, my hometown. Uh, Your days of being a pirate haven are over and 15% is super low, but the idea that they would agree on this and this would happen means that in the future, you can raise it to 20% and 25% and 30%. It's a huge first step. And this is shameful. CBS should be ashamed. but of course they would say, we're just following the law.
0: Well, right. Uh as is Google, as is uh Amazon, everybody, as is everybody, yeah, yeah. everybody. By the by the way, Captain Morgan just called and he said, Arg, <laughs> Arg. Stop <laughs> stop using the pirate word, Arg. I, I, I don't know. Is that is that what pirates say? I don't, it I don't is, know. It is, it is. Keep going, keep going. Okay, well, the BAFTA Awards, they took place last week and they celebrated the best in UK television, the HBO BBC miniseries I May Destroy You. It was a big winner. It's it's what I think. Uh, this joke, by the way, would have been much funnier if I could remember. Joke? Over- joke? Don't make a Paul, joke about Paul a show Pogan? about rape.
1: Don't make a joke about. Don't make
2: a I joke about a I may destroy about
1: you. A about- it's a, I'm making a title joke. No, no, no. <laughs> oh, Man, <laughs> what are you getting? My my Bowie knife is bigger than your knife.
0: No, no. The I may destroy you. The words I may destroy you. The the Floyd Mayweather fight that he fought the Logan Paul. Logan Paul, I think his name is. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what, uh, you know, Floyd Mayweather said to Logan Paul, and then he kind of let him off the hook there at the end. How
1: is that? How did he say I may destroy you? You know, they always do that. There was like a little ruffle feathers. Oh, my God. a boxing match. I know the boxing match, the the fake boxing match in which he didn't knock him out and let him yeah. last 11, eight rounds. Good for them. They made a lot of money anyway. Yeah. I like well, anyway. somebody. Somebody said I think it was Deadline. They said the match starring one of the greatest boxers of all time and the second most successful, you know, YouTube artist in the family. <laughs> 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 Ouch! Unbelievable. Anyway, I may destroy you. The acclaimed HBO BBC miniseries was a big winner, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it scored Best Miniseries and Best Actress for creative M- Michaela Cole. and what may be a first, by the way, Cole dedicated her award to the show's Intimacy Coach, saying they allowed her to make a show about exploitation, loss of respect, about abuse of power without being exploited or abused in the process. Paul Mescal won Best Actor for being, you know, I guess so hot in Normal People. And the continuing drama, Casualty, won best soap for the third time in its 35 year history. So is this a big deal or a big whoop?
1: Uh, it's a big whoop of course. show's got awards, but it's a good indication that I may destroy you may have big momentum going into the Emmy Awards and I just like writing stuff and making you talk about how how attractive some male actors are. That's always fun. <laughs> You're like <laughs> it is hot okay yeah, I guess so. Um, but Casualty uh, is has been around for 35 years and it spun off the TV drama Holby City. Which leads us to our next story. I was going to say, hold the phone, because someday Grey's Anatomy will be canceled. Don't tell my niece. Do not tell Maggie. She does not want to hear that. It better never be canceled.
0: My daughter has watched episode upon episode upon episode of Grey's Anatomy. She thinks she's pretty much a doctor at this point. Oh, sure. She walks around going, what? Kidney failure? Stat. Yep. I can fix that. No problem. You need (laughs) your appendix out? Give me a knife. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, Grey's Anatomy will be canceled really only when its star Ellen Pompeo decides it's time. She is the heart of the show. Now, if Mark Harmon, for instance, wants to quit the original NCIS, that show will probably end as well. But other series are kind of like indestructible, and we're thinking of daytime soap operas and franchises like Law & Order. I wish... You know we need a little like sound effect every time I say Law & Order? Chung, chung, Yeah. Uh, but we're not a morning zoo show, so... Anyway, yes, the BBC drama Holby City is among those types of shows that will go on forever. It's a medical show, like Grey's Anatomy, that's been on the air for 23 years. The cast is ever-changing, but typically includes bringing in some relatively well-known names for a few years, like a landlocked love boat. But it has stints-lasting seasons rather than just an episode or two. Now, the BBC is pulling the plug. The question is, why? ratings have held steady at about 5 million viewers for years only to tick up to 6.5 million in 2018 and 2019 the bbc here's what the bbc said they had to make room for new shows and opportunities is it schedule like too overcrowded with hit shows i don't understand and is this a big deal or a big whoop
1: well it's a, it's a big whoop i guess in the scheme of things but i am confused when you look at the ratings literally going up by like 20% in the last 2 years and It's just this durable franchise and why wouldn't just go to BBC iPlayer or whatever they call their, you know, player and go to some streaming service? Why get rid of it completely? Like they need room for for what? (laughs) You don't get rid of hits. And uh, it's just it's bizarre. If people in the UK understand this, you know, let us know. We've given you the information before, but reach out to us. I tried to figure this out. It's not a show where the cast expense is so high because people aren't on it for 20 years. They really do have a rotating sort of cast of people who come in and out. So if you needed a lower cost, you could just bring in a few new actors like they do on Grey's and a lot of shows and that would work too. So I'm not quite sure what's going on here. It seems like that rural purge that happened at CBS. CBS at one point famously in the early 70s said, we got a lot of dumb shows here and they're just appealing to the heartland and they just canceled everything with like, a farm in it. Every what was the joke? Every, every, <laughs> little house on the prairie. Every, everything with a tree. Well, that wasn't on CBS. That's NBC. But they canceled like Green Acres and uh, Petticoat Junction and all these rural shows. Mayberry RFD, I think, was among the. the I mean, they they canceled shows that were quite successful. Uh, uh, what's the hee-haw, I think, was part of the purge. <laughs> and they canceled all the... But what happened was they replaced them with shows that they were doing that were more urban and sophisticated and it became part of the CBS heyday of the Mary Tyler Moore show and, and, you know, Bob Newhart show and All in the Family and all those shows that made CBS the Tiffany Network. Did they attract more advertising and more viewers and more money that way? Maybe it was sort of an early demographic move by CBS to say we got shows that appealed to people who are too old and too stuck in their ways. So maybe something's going on at the BBC. I don't know. Uh, maybe they're getting
0: it, less money and they're like, look, we've got to get rid of one of these shows and we don't have
1: money to make, you know. To- they are certainly, times are tight on the budget, that's sure, and they're under a lot of pressure, but dumping a, a, you know, an easy hit seems like an odd move. The Russian
0: comedy Son of a Rich, I love that, Son of a Rich, uh, <laughs> it is the highest grossing Russian language film in that country's history. It's about the spoiled brat of an oligarch whose father arranges for his not-too-bright son to be convinced he's been reincarnated as a serf in the 1800s. Hilarity ensues. <laughs> it's also the latest film to get remade in multiple local languages. Remember, that film's... that film. Remember... God, we talked about this for so long. Perfect Strangers, I think mm-hmm. it started in Italy. It was about friends who gather for dinner. And then they decide, hey, you know what we should do? You know what'd be fun? Let's put our cell phones in the middle of the table, and we will share every text and phone call that we get with the entire group. What could go wrong? Well, it set a record for most local language remakes, and now Son of a Rich is hot on its heels, thanks to Sony Pictures International and others. It will be remade in Polish, French, Mexican, Indian, South Korean, Japanese, Spanish, and Italian. Wow. Okay. Not mentioned, by the way, in the variety story, English language rights. What's going on there?
1: Big deal or big whoop? Uh, It's a big whoop, I think. I'm sure this trend has been going on forever, but it seems like it's got new life, the idea of local language. Usually it was like, I guess we were only aware of like, the English language remake of foreign films. And then those would dominate around the world and nobody else would bother. That was sort of my impression in the old days. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this happened all the time in the 70s and the 60s and the 50s. I don't think so. I think this is a fairly new phenomenon, but I won't swear to it. Um, You know, I've tried to look it up, tried to figure it out, but uh, I don't know. It's interesting. It's very interesting that the value of remaking in your local language, even if everybody else is doing it in theirs, that, you know, I mean, go see the original. But clearly, it's a type of comedy with the setup, like the Truman Show meets, you know, the 1% that works in all sorts of different settings and has more, you know, power if it's done in your local setting with the local details and things that would, you know, make sense to you. So, I, I think it's a cool thing to happen. I think it's interesting. I'm just wondering how new it is. I don't know. Right to us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If it is new, that makes it all the more of a big deal. If it's something that's been going on for uh, since movies began, I guess it's more of a big whoop. I mean, I know there was a Spanish-language Dracula back in the silent era, or the early sound era, but, you know, who knows? Well, Michael, that does wrap up Big Dealer Big whoop for this week
0: and moves us right along into our most popular segment inside baseball. Inside baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly how they affect you. I will also stumble over my words as I as I try and read through that. But I was also stumbling when I saw that uh, the New York Times had hired an Ann Thompson impersonator to uh, <laughs> apparently write a, a whole op-ed and I thought, "Oh, Ann is going to be really upset with this." And then I saw, "Oh, Actually, no. It's the Ann Thompson writing an opinion piece for the New York Times. So, and uh, of tell, course, tell can, us who Ann is. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh well. Should I read the the, uh, yeah. the New York Times? Ann Thompson is the editor uh, ed- editor at large at IndieWire. And uh, so, thank you for joining us.
2: I always enjoy this show anytime.
1: And the author of The $11 Billion Year, From Sundance to the Oscars, An Inside Look at the Changing Hollywood System. Boy, am I jealous, Anne. You got a byline in the New York Times. I haven't been able to do that. How did it happen?
2: <laughs> they approached me. Uh, oh,
1: doubly, doubly gone. complimentary. They came to you and said, would you do this for us? Good Lord. Well done.
2: It was about the the summer box office. And I guess, um, as you know, I guess I've written about <laughs> about it so much at this point, um, this over the course of this year uh, that they thought maybe I would have something to, to say. And I called around and, 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 um, and, and talked to some folks and, and hustled something together for them. And, and, you know, um, yes, when you write for the New York times, a lot of people read it. <laughs> it's yeah, very nice.
1: They take your phone calls quickly. Yeah. The um, Well, the, there's one, Sentence at the top that caught our attention, and of course, the the name of it of the of the op-ed is four Ways This Summer is a Huge Test for Movie Theaters," and we'll go through them one by one. But you said, "quote A lot of things have to go right for the two-hour movie theatrical release to endure." End quote. Do you think theatrical faces an existential crisis?
2: I do. I definitely do. Because as much as we love the experience, and as much as as frequent moviegoers that particular segment is returning uh, to the theaters and, and delighted to be doing so they lost people over the pandemic and the studios found a new way to get their movies out uh, to, to bigger, larger audiences than theaters. And the theaters only have this one way to, to make a living. And you can feel that the analog universe of movie theaters from hideous leases and landlords to dying multiplexes and, um, shopping malls, you know, to their own myopic approach to their own business, which often seems to deny reality. If you look at this whole AMC craziness, um, you, you just see that there's so many different ways that this could go wrong, <laughs> you know, even if the studios and the theaters are trying to make it work right now uh, for the next few years, I see uh, a lot of things that could go wrong.
0: Well, the AMC craziness of um, what you're referring to is the fact that uh, its stock price skyrocketed over the last uh, week, really, uh, and they it's the managed- game
1: stop of the day.
0: Yeah. And they managed to raise over $800 million because of it. uh, And hopefully they'll pay down some debt. But I honestly, looking at the fact that Adam Aaron did a a two hour interview on Trey's Trades, a YouTube channel, kind of, uh, I think he's leaning into it a bit too much because the stock price is now at like $58. It is not worth 30 times the amount of money that it made in 2019. There's just no way.
2: The other thing that worries me is that he seems to be selling this kind of idea. I mean remember this is the 20 million dollar man, you know, he ended up getting this huge payday during the pandemic when all the AMC theaters were closed. That theater chain has been overleveraged from the beginning. People predicted that it was on the verge of bankruptcy. So so how do they suddenly at the end of of this period of time uh, magically uh, get back to to, th- to some kind of uh, extraordinary success when the studios are going to be giving them less movies. They're going to be sharing the audience with streaming, even when they do get a movie like Cruella, which could have made something like 10 million, according to some of my sources, more than it did if it hadn't been on uh, Disney+. Plus. I mean, the future doesn't look like it's a growth trajectory for theaters well, that, at best, they're going to hold their own, and in any case, they're going to lose volume. they're going to use volume of product and volume of theaters as all the weaker theaters go out of business. What do you guys think
0: I think uh, well, to be honest with you, I think you you're not you're you're onto something is basically what I would think is that they the challenges are. Enormous. They had a supplier. They are reliant, The movie theaters are reliant on only that supplier. There's only five of them. Uh, and yes, there are independents. They're locked into these ridiculous hundred year old schemes of you have to play my film four times a day. You have to play it clean. You, you, you know, you have to play that animated movie that only kids go to at 10 p.m. at night that nobody's going to go to. Uh, and until they they kind of can break those bonds i i don't necessarily know that they can continue to grow as you as you uh say the same way they've been uh operating if they change on the other hand if they offer more of an experience if they offer who is, something who is they
1: and, and what i'm sorry
0: if cinema operators can uh well they offer
1: I, they already offer big screens great seats uh, you know, up, upscale food. They, they've really improved the movie going experience over the last 20, 30 years. I'm not, right. other than making the seats shake, what is it that they're not doing that you think they should be in uh, terms of experience? Offering
0: something that you can't get at home in terms of the content. So I, I think- Well, that that's what, not up to the theaters. That's up to the studios. True. However, here's what I would say. If you look at, and, and you you know this, if you look in France, Pathé, UGC, uh, MK2, they all make movies that they show at their movie theaters. In other words, they've become HBO. They basically have said, hey, you know what? I'm going to make the movie. I'm going to show it in my venue. And I'm not going to rely on the content supplier, the manufacturer in that in this case, to give me my product.
2: Well, the way they do it in France, which is so interesting, it would have had to have been uh, a system created long ago. It's not like you can impose that system on the U.S., at this stage, I don't think, but what they do is, is all the producers and the cinemas are in business together, sharing all their proceeds in a different way. And, and I don't necessarily think that they should have those enormously long windows that they do, which makes Mm -hmm. it impossible for Netflix to show there, for example, uh, in theaters at all, um, (laughs) uh, at all because of that. Um, but, but I, 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 it is interesting that they, that they have held up beautifully. During the pandemic, and everything went well for them, and people do support movie going, and and there's enough, you know, it's they're in the system together, uh, in a in a really wonderful synchronous, symbiotic way. Whereas what happened in the U.S. after the Paramount consent decrees, just to get into the weeds here, is that the studios shed their movie theaters under duress by you know ordered by the courts. And uh, their vertical integration was gone, and they had to, um, over the years, they stayed partners, but in recent years, they have become more and more separated and acrimonious and not in sync at all. And that's part of the problem, too. Is, is they're actually anti and, and what's the word they they don't like each other they're
1: antagonistic and that brings <laughs> us to the four ways this summer is a huge test number one you say movie studios are calling the shots they're in charge how is that they, they can basically demand the windows they want and theaters have no bargaining power right.
2: That's right, because the theaters are dependent on getting those movies. One of the things I learned, uh, it isn't, uh, some things I learned didn't make it into the story because it had to be short. But one of the things I did learn is that the theaters have the attitude that this is temporary that this is post pandemic and and that they will uh, ic- you know have to accept these and I spoke to some exhibitors so I, I they they said the same thing we they don't like these terms at all that that the windows are gone that that they're shifting that the studios are are basically going day and date and and uh you know there's a 45 POVOD window 45 days um so they're, they're not happy about this at all, but they're playing the movies. If, if, if they're accepting Warner Brothers' product, then they have to accept Universal's Boss Baby, even if they're going day and date. So, so I find that sort of interesting, and I don't believe it. I don't believe that the, that the theaters are suddenly going to get back their mojo and hold off the, the studios again. I, don't, I think those days are gone, um, where they could say, we're not going to play your movie if you break the window. Um,
1: but, but will the studio also say, gee, fifty million dollars at the box office total isn't nearly as exciting as two hundred million or you know, three hundred million worldwide is not nearly as good as eight hundred or nine hundred million. Will they say, gee, this you know, maybe this isn't the way to go. Maybe we're not getting enough return on our premium video on demand to let us do this.
2: Well, I, I don't the the we don't know all the numbers, right? Right. And a lot of what's going on in my perception, I mean, it's not just Adam Aaron who's playing to Wall Street, it's the studios. So the studios, streaming is sexy, it's king. It's 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 where uh, Walt you know S- Disney scraped through this hideous pandemic with their with their uh, ocean liners their cruises you know uh, sk- stopped uh, the 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 theme, the theme parks park shut stopped down. you know all of it and they got through it because of streaming right and so they they take Cruella and they take Pixar and and they put Pixar's Luca in in take it away from the theaters with the family audience and the popcorn and the concessions and everything. That's a huge blow to the theaters, but they're doing it for a reason. They're doing they're giving up some of these Pixar movies, like Toy Story 4 and, and 3, I think it was, or, or it was 3 and one other sequel, d- made a billion at the box office worldwide. You're giving up... <laughs> I'm not saying Luca was going to make a billion worldwide, but you're giving up a lot. You're giving up hundreds of thousands of dollars to make the streaming play.
1: Millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. Millions, yes. Well,
0: and I would say that that, uh, I think it's very calculated. I think that they have number crunchers at Disney, as you well know, uh, and they are looking at those numbers and saying, you know what? Who is going to subscribe to Disney Plus? Parents. Parents are going to do that. And so, you know what? parents, it's, it's a Pixar film. It's an animated film. They're that they're doing it with animated films specifically. Uh, it has been suggested to me by several people in the animation world that, uh, the people at Pixar, the animators and the producers are none too happy. No, they're, no, they're not. they're basically like, thank you. We are your sacrificial lambs. Um, you know, the John- people aren't
2: happy about it either. So one of the things I've heard uh, from inside Disney is that this new, um, we're really getting into the weeds now this new uh uh structure where there's this one guy who's making all the decisions about how the movies get distributed and and where the revenues are going um that that isn't going to last that that it can't last that the producers of the content have to be somewhat invested in how the content goes out that even the even the um the marketing process, even the relationship with the filmmakers who get involved in and trailers and stuff stars. like that. Yes, thank you. All of that is important to uh how these movies g- hit the world. And the Kevin Feige's and Pete Doctor's uh and Kathleen Kennedy's of the world aren't necessarily gonna take a back seat forever. I think this is temporary. Well that's and where I'm talking I agree about. With it. A-
0: I'm sorry. Just to, to backtrack, you're talking about Kareem Daniel. By the way, at Disney, he Correct. is the he is uh, the head of media entertainment Distrib- the media entertainment distribution group, which is in charge of all distribution of all the product. Sorry, Michael. Yeah. Right.
1: And it's not that he won't have his important role. It's that they won't decide to make everything day and date, streaming, video, premium on demand. Um, I disagree with Sperling where he says they're crunching the numbers and say, oh, this is what makes the most financial sense for us. I think it's more about Anne's point, which is that this is a short-term play to keep your stock high. Right now, Wall Street is super excited by the fact that they've got Disney+. Plus. And like Anne says, her point, too, is streaming is king. The studios and Wall Street are enamored with streaming. So when Disney announces Luca is going to streaming, that's as much a play to say, hey, keep our stock going while we slowly get our cruise ships and our theme parks up again, uh, as it is to saying, oh, no, we know we're going to make more money this way. I think it's more about in the short term, we believe that there's more excitement for us to do this from Wall Street that keeps our stock up high. It keeps everybody calm for this weird period where. You know, not every theater is open, and the theaters that are are only playing at seventy five percent capacity.
2: So that's why it has to go well this summer for the theaters. It really does. So that that, that there's more incentive for the studios to keep giving them their biggest uh, players. But the lineup is good. Don't it's a very strong uh, f- summer. And f- you know, the f- summer is a little, you know, getting ramped up, and then the fall is really big. I think. Well, let's talk about
0: that for a second because you said that number one, the studios are our boss. Okay. They're in charge. Number two was streaming as king. And you mentioned these billion dollar movies. There's been 47 of them in 25 years. And of those, now here's a fact we kind of knew this, but we didn't know this, meaning we kind of knew that you counted.
2: I just did the math.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was like, oh my God, there's 20. I
2: literally wrote them all down, figured out which ones came from Disney and counted, you know?
1: 26 were from Disney over half. 47. That's over why they half. had 40% of the box office in 2019. That's unbelievable.
2: But
0: now you you mentioned the fall number 3 was older moviegoers are missing in action. However, uh you think that the that the fall could help is that the the idea
2: yeah, the $26 uh, billion dollar, uh, Disney movies. Yeah, that's a pretty amazing statistic because it's Marvel and Pixar and Star, Star Wars. Wars. And then in the fall, you end up with these, you know, the James Bond and Dune and West Side Story, and, and that, you know, F9 this summer will, will be huge, uh, to follow up on Quiet Place Part 2 and, and Cruella. Um, but it's the, I think it's the big guns or it's sort of like a summer, don't you think a summer lineup in the fall?
1: Right. And as you say, the older movies goers will come back once we have the house of Gucci and Downton Abbey 2, which literally no joke, my mother and her friends are already asking me, when can we buy the tickets in advance? I mean, they, they it's are going be huge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they are ready. So the older movie goer will come back. Uh, have there been literally no old people going to a quiet place part two, or are the numbers really down in those demographics?
2: The, the theater owners are not uh, willing to go on the record and admit that this is true. I hear it more from, from the studio side, but the exhibitor I spoke to uh, at landmark, uh, uh, definitely, uh, trying hard to get them back, the older viewers. Um, and, and it's, it's the art house audience that is older. And I'm, I would have to say that I'm a little more worried about the specialty market. Uh, if I may be honest,
1: they're not playing many movies right now. There That's are, right. right. So, I mean, there's not a chance really this for me to go back. Season. Right. right. there's, I mean, Summertime does have some movies, but they're not showing right now. So even so if Summer I wanted to go. So Summer Soul
2: maybe could do some business. That documentary, mm-hmm. The Quest Love mm-hmm. documentary. Oh, yeah. That looks great. Um, that one could do some business. You know, we'll have to see how how it goes.
1: That brings us to number four, where you say, and this is your boldest prediction and the one I, I take issue with. You say the theater business is not growing. You say, quote, we will never see another $11 billion year at the domestic box office, end quote, pointing out that this follows from five years in a row, from 2014 to 2019, where every year passed the $11 billion. you think those days are gone forever?
2: I do. For all the reasons I gave before. They're sharing the audience with the streamers. They're um, not getting all the movies that they got before. A lot of those movies are being diverted to PVOD and and streaming. And um, I think that I mean, I even wonder if the studios are going to continue to spend as much on budgets, if they aren't going to have as much returning from the global uh, box office. I would love to be wrong. Don't, you know, I want theaters to survive. I just don't see them as a growth market. It's kind of
0: like record stores. It's like, yes, there'll be some.
2: Look at Blockbuster back in the day, you know, or there were some, I actually did a story at one point on Netflix where I was looking at the, the what happened to Blockbuster and it's a fascinating chart where you see the numbers going up, up, up. And then you see Netflix <laughs> arriving, <laughs> and you see the numbers going down, 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 inevitably, until the, it's until you hit zero. And yeah. and I'm not saying that's what's going to happen to the theaters, but it's certainly not going to go up.
1: Well, I think um, that the stream, the, the streaming numbers, you know, we already see Disney slowing down a little bit, not adding tons of people every month. And I think by the end of the year, the, the, the love affair with the idea that streaming is everything. And the idea that you're giving up three, four, $500 million of box office to go day and date or premium video on demand. I think that'll fade a little bit. And I think in 2022, 2023, and, or 2024, within three years, I'm not counting 21 because it's, you know, the year's half over. I think those three years we will hit $11 billion again. And hopefully you'll be back on the show and I'll have to say, I'm absolutely wrong. You were right. Because I think within three years, if it doesn't happen, then you're just talking about inflation. It really won't happen again meaningfully. Um, it'll be down lower forever. Maybe someday it'll hit $11 billion, but that's just because we'll be charging 50 bucks a ticket. So hopefully in the next three years, we'll have you on and I'll have to say, I was wrong. You were right. Or maybe the box office, I think, I think that the short term wins of pumping up the stock price is not going to last. And looking at some of these movies and saying, oh, look how good Godzilla versus Kong did. Yeah, not really. <laughs> not when no. you add it up. When they actually do the numbers and say, we spent $200 million to put Soul on Disney Plus, okay. Yeah, you know, we would have made $800 million. We had made $800 million with Rhea. We might have made $800 million with Luca. You know, those, those Pixar movies are slam dunks. And if I think once. This-
2: there's a tricky, I, 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 I agree with you to, to a great extent, but there's a tricky tightrope walk, tight walk ahead of us where y- we can't count on the studios to do what's going to be good for theaters, you right. see? Are and you we still? can't count on the theaters to even do what's going to be good for the theaters. I, you, <laughs> I mean, if, if, called, if, Aaron, you, <laughs> if Adam Aaron goes on a buying spree, and I mean, I don't mind if he picks up you know arc light or something i mean that makes sense to a degree but but um or or the grove those are leases you know those are those are um, arrangements with with the landlords but but if you if you end up um if 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 att- attendance has been flat for years yeah. there is no growth well- here attendance even was even in was, the best but, of times
1: no attendance was growing slowly and steadily we hit a record box office in 2019 and we had a record worldwide box office and it wasn't no, just no, from no, price I, we, inflation we,
2: that's grosses no that's grosses but
1: that's, <laughs> Ticket sales were slowly and steadily. They did not fall off a cliff. They were. It's a mature market, North America. Of course, it's not growing by leaps and bounds. The population is not growing by leaps and bounds. But it did continue to keep pace with population growth, and, and ticket sales could, kept pace with inflation. We, All right, here's we, something
2: I didn't put in the article. Mm-hmm. The Chinese and Asian markets learned how much money they could make with local product. Oh the yeah. pandemic yeah. so that the yeah. year 2020, the, the uh, 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 Sperling, if I, if I make a mistake, please tell me, but, but I believe that the top film pr- pr- was, was Japanese anime and the mm-hmm. second and third were Chinese films. And, and that's never happened before. And, and, and it, it could keep going.
1: And that's a good thing because those movies can also be popular in North America. So the the Chinese market was very strong in 2019 as well. They were making lots of big hits, Wolf yeah. Warrior 2 and other things. And it's great because then those directors are world-class directors that make world-class movies that everybody will want to see. You know, we just have the the, high, the second highest grossing anime film of all time in North America, thanks, thanks to that. But you quote... Uh, corcoran uh so perhaps you disagree with him but he he's hoping that the studios will look (laughs) will work together with theaters. They say look if they know what's good for them studios and streamers alike should look past wall street smoke and mirrors audiences brand a title look at the oscars and golden globes they didn't tune in because the movies were out of the conversation end quote and you say listen studios don't make a don't look at this short term of gain of streaming. That's how I read it. You say, look, nothing builds value for a title like three weeks in a movie theater with strong word of mouth.
2: I believe that sincerely. And I know it's true. And I believe that even Netflix knows it's true. You know? They put some of their movies in theaters when they need to build those titles. It's so true, especially for our house movies and Oscar contenders and quality films that haven't got all the bells and whistles and Sequelitis and, and all that, the formula stuff. But it's, it's a question, I know that, you know that, uh, a lot of people know it's true. It's a question, for example, if you were to ask all the distribution chiefs at the studios, they know it's true. They believe in this marketplace. They believe in theaters and they want them to thrive. It's their bosses who are looking at the bottom line. And I believe that Patrick Corcoran is correct when he says that this isn't about people being friendly with one another. It's about dollars and cents. And that's what's calling the shots.
0: You know, uh, Denzel Washington said that Sidney Poitier told him, and this is, I mean, he told me this years ago, and I, I've heard him say it like 50 times since then, that the reason he left St. elsewhere is because Sidney Poitier told him if they can see you on Wednesday night, they ain't going to pay to see you on Saturday evening. And, <laughs> and that,
1: that's been and, and, proven and untrue think, many times over. You know, well, the idea but, that that's movie and TV, old debate. And now you go back and forth very healthily, I think, just like in the UK. You've got you've got Kate Winslet on television. And that, that's that just not makes that's
0: not my point. My point was that. But that was his point. Right. But I think my point in bringing that up was that there is something, as you say, Anne, that's, special about having to be about being in a movie theater and making people decide I'm going to leave my house. I'm going to go to a movie theater and I'm going to watch this particular.
2: With a crowd, with a crowd. Yeah. It's about, it's about sharing it with strangers and it's about escape. It's about giving up your phone and giving up, all the intrusions in your life and just letting go. It is the most relaxing thing in the world. I can't, I can't say how much pleasure I've had, you know, going back to the movies. Um, three times already, plus some screenings. So I'm glad that the studios are screening movies and I'm going to New York to see, you know, movies at Tribeca and, and I'm going to Cannes to see movies in the Lumiere and I couldn't be more excited and Sperling. I'm sorry to torture you with this cause you were my old roommate and uh, I'm, I'm afraid <laughs> I'll, I'll miss you, but um, uh, it's just um, there's nothing like it. And I'm terrified that everything is going to go wrong. I hope it goes right.
1: But I hope when you say three weeks in a movie theater, you're not endorsing the dreaded 17-day window, because I think that's way too short. I think it should be 45 days, especially for the smaller movies, obviously.
2: No, no. It's really for the smaller movies that it has to be much longer, much, much longer. And And they've got
1: it backwards. All the deals are like, well, big movies will keep them for 30 days, and smaller movies will do 17. And it's exactly the opposite of what you need.
2: (laughs) I couldn't agree more.
0: Yeah, yeah and hopefully you know everybody will figure it out but in the meantime i am sure that between now and the 3 years michael that you just mentioned that that we will be speaking to you again <laughs> before then uh but thank you very much for letting us uh interrupt your your weekend to talk about your your uh, is it an op ed or is it what is it referred to? They don't
2: call them that now, they changed it for some reason. Uh, oh. Um, it's, it's a quote unquote opinion column, it's the opinion department of the New York Times. So that was right. fun, and it was fun talking to you about it. Thank you, guys.
0: And did Brooks Barnes call you as soon as he, he saw it and go, Uh, Ann, you know, uh, please don't take over my job.
2: He's uh, he's he has a salary. He works for the New York Times. I'm not feeling sorry for Brooks <laughs> I can swan in once in a while.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for swanning in on us.
2: Okay, bye, bye, guys.
1: Bye. Well, that was great of Anne to join us. There were a couple things she had to run. She had to get her kid to something. She talked to us on a no, Sunday. No, no, no. And- she. I think she had like other meetings. That's right. We spoke to her on a Sunday. Now we're recording the rest of a show on the Monday. So this is Monday, June seventh. So it was great of her to take the time. She's a busy woman. She's a New York Times opinion columnist. You know, she's and an editor person. at large. And at large. Just, yes, exactly. The couple things I wanted to mention that I didn't have a chance that we didn't get time for uh, was. Where is it? Uh, Tom Rothman. Yeah. And Var- Variety has a story this week that just came out today, I think, about the summer season as being a constant test marketing case. That's true. And with all these windows, we've talked about it before. Like even consumers and even entertainment journalists can't keep straight what's available where and when and all that sort of thing. That sort of confusion isn't great. And Paul Derek Arabedian said, Hey, this summer is the test kitchen for the industry. Everybody's trying everything to see what works to which I say and how do you feel about this Sperling? I feel you can't draw strong conclusions from the summer it's too soon people are still not back at work P- school is still not in and out it's everything is so much in flux that I don't think you can draw great conclusions cuz either they're thrilled to get back to the movies or they're too busy or they just don't have a job or you know all maybe in the fall we can start to get a sense of what works back when we're at a normal sort of box office pattern then you could tell what these different windows and the impact they're having. Right now I think there's so many asterisks you'd have to put by anything. I don't think you can really draw great conclusions. I
0: agree. I think trying to measure anything right now is going to be difficult because it will either be overtrending and overclocking uh, because everybody's like so excited to go go out and and go
1: to the restaurants or, and they've just food. paid for for HBO Max so they want to get the most use out of it, you know, whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, trying to trying to measure things. Now, will it be different
1: when when we start measuring in twenty twenty two and twenty yes. or the twenty three, even even the fall, even the yeah. fall, things could be a little bit more back to normal. So I feel like it's too soon. I don't think you could really draw great conclusions. They'll draw some conclusions, that's for sure. And the other thing I wanted to mention was Deadline has a series called "The Films That Lit My Fuse." Uh, which I always watch. is like a little video interview. They did them during the pandemic and they keep doing them to just talk about people, talk about the movies they love that inspired them and why they think the industry will come back. And it's just sort of become a signature feature for them. It's pretty cool. People do it by Zoom. It's fun. One of the questions I don't understand (laughs) <laughs> like I literally the wording of it is so confusing but i enjoyed the series i watch it and they just had on tom rothman the head of sony pictures and his was a fun thing his first big movie was lawrence of arabia and he talked about how he was involved in the restoration and all this and at the end they asked a question about streaming which was a new question they haven't done before and he said movies have competed with in-home entertainment for 70 years you like The story people are writing about streaming could have been written when they launched television, or cable, or HBO, or the VCR, or Blu-ray. He said, this is nothing new. Movies have stood up to this all in the past, and it's still standing, still going great. It's fun to go to the movies. It's fun, he says. You should watch this whole chat. It's like 15 minutes long. But it's like, going to the movies is fun. That's why people will go back to the movies. However, however, he said, day and date is bad. Movies need to be first, and they need to be special. And having movies available at home day and date is different from just competing with whatever is available on cable and TV and HBO and VCRs and all that sort of stuff. So he's a strong believer in Windows, and he thinks day and date is very bad, to which I say, and by the way, Sony is the one studio that doesn't have a streamer. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, but they're making a lot of money from streaming by selling their their properties
0: to uh, to Netflix and Disney. Right, so but they'd, they, like they to make,
1: they'd like to make money at the box office and then later sell it to them for a nice right. windowed streaming thing. Not, not the same day and date. They don't want to compete with themselves. And I would say it's a very good point, and I've made it before, about, hey, look, movies have withstood the VCR, HBO, cable, television. All these things were the death knell of the cinema. However, there's a big difference between the ability to rent something for $3 You know, like you might do, say, "All right, it's available now on demand or on uh, go to Blockbuster or Redbox." You have that ability to get something and rent it or download it. That's very different from the fact that you are already paying for Disney Plus and HBO Max and Netflix. So, if something is available on HBO Max and you've already paid that fifteen dollars for HBO Max, you didn't choose to do it. It wasn't like you could say, "Well, let me spend five bucks on this movie." You're already paying that fifteen dollars, and there is the movie the conjuring three available that's a very different scenario that's very different than we've ever had before in terms of in-home entertainment you're already paying the money and it's already there for you basically for free put that in quotes because you've already paid the money so that's a very different proposition from say do i want to go to a movie theater or do i want to spend five bucks and rent it well you're already spending 15 bucks and there it is so that's a much harder challenge to overcome which makes the windows all the more important. But let one thing is clear. Movies are not dead. Not yet, Ann Thompson. We'll see. I bet it comes back in 2022. It comes back, I say.
0: Well, I say to you that the VCR is to the American film producer as the and the American public as the Boston Strangler is to the woman home alone. What, what, what? Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what Jack Valenti said. In 1982. Oh, 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 oh right, 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 right. In his testimony to the House of Representatives on why the VCR should be illegal, because he was trying to say, look, you shouldn't be
1: allowing these people to videotape our movies. Well, the movies were always scared of the competition, but when they're the ones owning the streamer and they're the ones making the money, they're not so scared anymore. Now they're like, no. bring it on. We love it. Yeah, precisely.
0: But you know who's not going to be loving anything anymore? Who? Actor Robert Hogan.
1: Of Hogan's Heroes, by the way. No, he's not of Hogan's Heroes. He's the namesake. He's a journeyman actor. He had more than 150 credits to his name on movies and TV. Uh, I mean, he was kidnapped by Mr. Freeze in the goofy Batman TV series. He dated Linda Lavin for a couple years on Alice for five seasons, in fact. He played the Reverend Tom Winter for two seasons on Peyton Place. We'll come back to that show in a minute. That was probably one of his longest-running gigs. But he always worked. Began off-Broadway, he started opposite Robert Duvall and Joan Hackett and Alvin Ely. Never looked back. He did pretty much every daytime soap, three Law and Orders, the Mary Tyler Moore Show, the Donna Reed Show, the Cosby Show, Magnum P.I., The Wire, and on and on and on. A cool journeyman actor, but he has two cool footnotes to his career. One, a friend of his created the sitcom Hogan's Heroes and named the title character after Robert Hogan. Cool. It's Hogan's Heroes. It's his name. He auditioned for the role, and he didn't get it. it's like, it's my name. It's me. How can you not give me the role? But they didn't give him the role. And in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which by the way, the novelization that Tarantino wrote is coming out this month. I'm very intrigued by that. In that movie, Leonardo DiCaprio's character is watching TV and he praises the performance of Bobby Hogan on a 1965 episode of the ABC drama, the FBI. So that's kind of cool. You know, that stage of his career, that stage in his life, he goes to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and gets a shout out from Quentin Tarantino and Leonardo DiCaprio. That's pretty cool. Died at the age of 87 and good for him. And also dying at the age of 87 was lawyer F. Lee
0: Bailey. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because you were alive in the 90s and you were watching the (laughs) O.J. In the 80s
1: and the 70s. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, he's famous
1: for decades.
0: Yeah, a big, uh, a big lawyer uh, probably should have been a movie producer. Who knows? Uh, but he represented uh, O.J.'s. Well, know, I say that because
1: he, I say he should have been a producer because he was always representing all these famous people that became movies. You know, he represented O.J. And, and Bailey was played by Nathan Lane in the TV miniseries, The People vs. O.J. He repped Patty Hearst, the heiress turned bank robber. That led to numerous books and movies. He represented Sam Shepard, not the playwright, but the man who inspired the smash hit TV series, The Fugitive, which of course led to the films with Harrison Ford. Ah, he was colorful. It was a colorful guy. He was disbarred in Florida and his home state of Massachusetts for playing with clients money. That's a no, no. He even spent time behind bars himself. Ah, that sounds like it be a good movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I know who couldn't star in it. Clarence Williams, the of the mod that squad. Would, that would be poor casting. That would be yeah. because of course he's dead. He just died at the age of 81. And he's a person of color. He's a black man, which is why he's had such a great, notable career. He was a star of stage, TV, and film, and he died at the age of 81. He was Tony-nominated for his performance in Slow Dance on the Killing Ground. That was his first big break. On stage, he also acted opposite Geraldine Page and later in a Tom Stopper play opposite Maggie Smith, two of the best stage actors of their time, of not all time, for sure. And in film, he played the father of Prince in Purple Rain. Uh, Do you remember that movie? He's like the dad and the father and the mother are fighting all the time. And Prince is very upset about it. And at one time he comes home and Clarence Williams is glowering and he says, son, never get married. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, dad, I won't get married. Never get married. That's what he says. He was in a bunch of films directed by John Frankenheimer and a bunch of other stuff like Half Baked, the comedy to Lee Daniels, the butler on TV. He had a recurring role on Twin Peaks in season two. He appeared in 10 of these hallmark TV movies called the Mystery Woman series. He also popped up on everything from Hill Street Blues to Miami Vice, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and the legally obligated role on The Cosby Show. But what's he known for most of all? Mod Squad. That's right. He's known forever as Link on the very hip smash hit TV series, The Mod Squad. For five years, it was part of a wave of TV shows featuring black stars in prominent roles on American TV, like Bill Cosby and I, Spy, a few years earlier, earlier, and Nichelle Nicholson on Star Trek, and then the Mod Squad and uh, a couple of other sitcoms and dramas just following in its wake. And he wasn't just on equal terms with his white co-stars, which was new. He wasn't just dignified, which was new. He was cool. He used slang like solid and keep the faith. He even gave Peggy Lipton a friendly peck on the cheek, which freaked ABC out. Star Trek had already done the first interracial kiss on TV, but ABC was like, you can't do it. You can't do it. And Aaron Spelling's like, We're doing it. We're doing it. And so they did it, and nobody cared. Nobody said a word. (laughs) The times, they were a-changing. By the way, Mod Squad started in 68. Easy Rider came out in 69. That was the big countercultural movie. But you think about that. Mod Squad was there first. It beat Easy Rider. Bill Cosby was a big player in his career. He saw Williams on stage, recommended him to producer Aaron Spelling, who was just casting the Mod Squad. So Spelling put him in a scene driving a getaway car in some anthology TV series he was doing just to see what he was like on camera. So Williams, you know, they have the scene, they rob the bank, they run out to the car, Williams jumps into the car, drives off, and immediately crashes into a pole. (laughs) And Spelling is quoted by how the reporter saying, I thought everybody was killed. We all rushed over. I said, Clarence, Clarence, what happened? He said, I've never driven before. (laughs) I said, why didn't you tell me that? He said, because I wanted the job. (laughs) I hired him that night for the Mod Squad." (laughs) what a great story so he, he he died of colon cancer by the way so get a colonoscopy it's not a big deal i've done it and if you don't have a family history like me you can get away with an easy test administered at home we have a link in our show notes also just dying a guy who worked with aaron spelling douglas s kramer the executive producer on tv shows like wonder woman dynasty and the love boat he and peyton plays so he's tied in to robert hogan and he's tied in To Clarence Williams, even though I don't think he worked on the Mod Squad, but he did work on the Love Boat. He died at the age of 89. He worked with Spelling and others for many years. Uh, They had a great time together. He's the one who saw a story about some stupid paperback novel about how easy it is to have sex on a cruise ship. And he optioned that, and that became the Love Boat. And later on, he worked with uh, Danielle Steele and a bunch of TV movies. He made a lot of stuff, made a lot of money too. Well, you know what? We we make a lot of No, oh, we don't
0: make a, we lot, make of a lot of money. We make a lot of money. We don't make a lot of money, but we do have a lot of love from our listeners who subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You cannot subscribe to us in any one of those podcast aggregators. And where you can, please do rate or, and review the show. It helps us out when you do that and uh, is much appreciated by us. That information, as well as links to Ann Thompson's work. I'd like to thank Anne for joining us today as our special guest during Inside Baseball. We will place links to her work in our show notes on showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's show, as well as all those ways to subscribe to us, ways to contact us. Dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're on Twitter, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle. And we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash Sandbox. Again, all that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is... MGMT.com. Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week he's got a new and exciting website for us. What is it this week, Michael?
1: This week it's KeepTheFaithBrother.com. And if you go to KeepTheFaith.com, it's some charity. I can't speak for them, so don't trust them. I haven't I haven't researched them. <laughs> you know, don't go there. Go to MichaelGiltz.com.
0: Yes, MichaelGiltz.com is where all of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, play nice.